So last week we talked about justice. What we're going to talk about today is social justice. This passage in Leviticus is the end of the section on Kedushim, which is to say holiness. And the thing that's interesting about it is holiness is not just something spiritual, it is also economic. So all of these laws that we just read about, how you inhabit the land, how you sell it, and all those kinds of things are all part of holiness. There's no separation in God's economy. So you've all heard the various isms, socialism, communism, Nazism, whatever. All of these isms claim to solve a problem that God, in fact, has already solved. So what I'm going to do is explain to you how that works. The two problems that all of these economic isms try to solve, boiled down, we're talking about debt slavery, and we're talking about lack of capital. So when I say debt slavery, it can be literal slavery, or it can be so deep in debt that you are doing nothing but working to service that debt. And we see that today in the brouhaha about student loans and and all sorts of stuff like that. And the lack of capital means that you don't have the wherewithal to start a business, to improve yourself economically. Those problems are at the core of all of the human isms that we talk about. Socialism says, well, we're going to have common ownership of property and governments can own the means of production and all that kind of stuff, so it'll be fair. What God does instead is says to his people, you be holy, and this is how you deal with each other to solve those problems. The problem is, everywhere in the world, in every society, wealth tends to concentrate upwards. What you have is you have people, all of us are people, some of us are very clever, others of us are ruthless. And either one of those groups of people tend to accumulate wealth over time, and that wealth goes up and you wind up with a pyramid. So at the top of the pyramid, you got the rich. Next down, you've got what we'll call workers or employees or whatever. And at the bottom of that, you've got some variety of slave. And the reason it's a pyramid is because the wealthy are fairly few, and at the bottom, the slaves or serfs or whatever they happen to be called in your society are most people. So the question becomes, since people are people, and we all get angry and resentful, how do you keep that turning over so it doesn't become perpetuated? How do you provide for mobility up and down that pyramid? So that somebody who has been a third generation serf and gets a really good idea can then move up as opposed to being stuck down there on the bottom. How do you do that? And what God does is he has two things that make that happen. One is Shemitah, which is the sabbatical year that we read about today, and the other one is Yovel or Jubilee. Now, what happens at Shemitah? For Shemitah, the land rests. One of the things that's interesting about that is... God says, well, what are you going to eat? And you're going to say, well, what are we going to eat? And it's interesting because God doesn't require any faith for this. What he says is, 
I will give you a bumper crop in the sixth year so that you will be able to make it through the seventh and the planting season on the eighth until you finally get your harvest at the end of the eighth year. So I'll give you enough up front so you can do that. And oh, by the way, as my friend Ray used to famously say, land will either grow food or weeds, but it will grow something. And the idea here is the land, which has been agricultural land all this time, is going to continue to produce. Your grapevines, which you're not going to tend, are going to continue to produce grapes. Your fruit trees are going to continue to produce fruit, whether you trim them or not, just not as much. And that is for everybody. You can walk into your own field and grab a bunch of grapes. You just can't harvest them. Your neighbor can walk into your field and grab a bunch of grapes. The little foxes can walk into your field and eat a bunch of grapes. Point is, the land becomes resting from your work, but it continues to produce. So the idea there is the land belongs to God. It's going to rest, and I will give you enough food to get you past it, so don't worry about it. Now, you all know your history, and you know, in fact, that Israel didn't do that. The deal in Jeremiah is when the Babylonians came and finally took them all off to Babylon, Jeremiah said, God says the reason that's happening is you haven't been doing these sabbatical years for the land. So I'm going to take you off the land and let the land rest for all of the Sabbath that you owe me, 70 years. So God's serious about this. But the idea here is during that time, everybody rests. What's that have to do with debt? Well, it's not in this passage of Scripture, but it is in Deuteronomy. And during the Shemitah, the seven-year Sabbath, all debts are canceled. And it specifically says in Deuteronomy, if your brother comes to you and needs a loan, you will not say, well, wait a minute, we're in the sixth year, and I know that deadbeat is not going to be able to pay me back in the next six months. Lent it to him anyway. God says. But the idea here is nobody gets into perpetual debt slavery because debts are automatically canceled every seven years. So the idea of being constantly oppressed by debt is solved. And <clears throat> the other thing that happens on Yovel is all Israelite slaves are freed. We talked about slavery last time, and you can get into slavery several ways. One is you can be a criminal, and you can steal something and not be able to pay it back, not be able to make proper restitution. So what they do is they sell your franchise, and you become somebody's laborer for up to six years. And at the end, you're freed. Everybody is freed. And there's all sorts of rules about that, but the point is slavery in Israel is not something you are, but something you do. So you get a job that you can't quit for some period of time if you get in trouble. You can also get such a job if you're so poor that all you have to sell is yourself. And you can then go to your brother and sell yourself into slavery. Basically what you're doing is you're getting a job that you can't quit for the next some number of years up to six but not beyond seven. And furthermore, in Deuteronomy it says, when you turn this guy loose at the end of six years, I'm down in Deuteronomy 15, 12, 
If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years. In the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. So, you've gotten yourself in trouble, can't pay your bills, you can't eat, you sell yourself to your brother, you work for him for some period of time, and at the end of the time, he sends you off with enough stuff to get on your feet and continue in freedom. So, that's the Shmeta, the seventh year. Then we have Yobel. It is one of two sequences in Scripture of seven times seven plus one. We are in the middle, actually beyond the middle, of one of those. And that's the counting of the Omer from first fruits after Passover until Shavuot. And you are to count seven weeks of Sabbaths plus one day. Here you're supposed to count seven years plus one year. Seven times seven plus one, same sequence. And what the deal is, seven is complete. So seven times seven is really complete. One more is a new beginning. And notice that Yovel does not start either on the first of Tishri or the first of Nisan. It starts on Yom Kippur because it represents a new beginning. What's the new beginning that happened on Yom Kippur? Forgiveness for the sin of the golden calf. That's when Moses comes down with the second set of tablets. And God says, okay, fine. We'll forget about the gold. We'll forget, but we'll forgive you for the golden calf, and we're going to start over. The rabbis say, interestingly enough, and I like this very much, even though it's not scriptural, that the period we're in now is seven times seven plus one weeks, and that is a new beginning from the sin of Adam. That's when God takes us out, stands us at the foot of the mountain, and says, okay, fine, I'm going to take you for my people. I'm going to give you my rules, and you're going to be special to me, and off we go in the beginning. The other thing that happens on Yovel is the land goes back to its original owner. Some minor exceptions, but what happens is, let's say that you've got a little plot of farmland, and you have a bad year, you have a drought, etc., and you can't feed yourself. Well, you can sell the land and go off and do something else. You may even sell yourself as a slave. And at the end of six years, you cease to be a slave, but your land doesn't belong to you anymore. Land represents capital. Land plus labor equals crops, which one hopes equals surplus, which means that you can build up wealth. So what's happened when you've sold your land is you have no capital. So even though you got freed at the end of six years from selling yourself as a slave, yeah, you got being supplied liberally by your former boss, but you got nowhere to go. So what happens at the end of seven times seven plus one is the land goes back to its original owner, which is to say you get your capital back and we start all over. 
And what that does is prevents, as I say, the clever ones and the ruthless ones from running the table and winding up owning everything and having all the wealth. Because once every 50 years, capital gets restored. Once every seven years, liberty gets restored and debts get canceled. And by the way, as I said at the beginning of this, all of this is a function in God's eyes of holiness. Holiness is not just some pious thing that you do and you sit on your blessed assurance and you stare off into space and you feel really holy. No. This has to do with how do you treat your brother economically, how do you deal with people, etc. That's all part of God's holiness economy. Now, most of you are aware that what we have raging right now in the United States and probably other places in the world is this social justice movement. And what the social justice movement does is it's trying to address the same problems that God addresses. Well, it's not fair that we have all these billionaires. It's not fair that some people are treated differently than others. It's not fair that whatever. Well, God solved that. But the people who are saying this are godless. So what they think is we can do it better if they even know about how God's economy is supposed to work. Now, again, don't get me wrong. The way God's economy is supposed to work and the way it actually worked in Israel are often two different things. That's why God periodically uproots them and sends them into exile. Because you're not doing what I told you to do. And hence your society has become corrupt, has become unjust, and you stink like dirty diapers, and off you go. So I'm not suggesting that even Israel's people did this very well, very consistently. But that's not God's fault, that's our fault. So what we have here in the United States is much the same problem. Let me back up just a second. The story I tell all the time. When we got into this, we were still in the Episcopal Church. And Kay was talking about reading Torah and all this kind of stuff to the pastor's wife. And she got this snarky, well, what's your favorite part of Leviticus? The whole point is, most of the Sunday church doesn't spend a lot of time in Leviticus. So they don't understand it. And what has happened is that Sunday church has gone away from the Torah. And then you have all of the people who may used to have been in the Sunday church or not, who don't have any idea, and they regard God's Torah as something oppressive, old-fashioned. One of the comments that I saw on Facebook or somewhere, I don't remember where I saw it, so you guys are in Torah. Well, tell me how I'm supposed to treat my slaves. As in, wait a minute, God permits slavery. That is really unjust. I don't want anything to do with that. Well, yeah, he does. But he gives you the reasons for it, and it turns out that slavery is a remedy for an economic problem. He says this is how you treat it. Now, again, don't get me wrong, Israel didn't do this practically very well, which is, again, why they get sent into exile. So God has a remedy there, too. There's a saying, it's an old one, that the perfect is the enemy of the good. For example, remember when the pro-life amendment was being shopped around here for the election? You had a whole bunch of people who were against abortion who wouldn't vote for it because it wasn't perfect. It didn't outlaw all abortions, so we're not going to vote for it. 
and it went down in flames, whereas it would have saved some, not everybody, but it was a step in the right direction. In other words, we got here incrementally, we're going to get back incrementally. And if the perfect becomes the enemy of the good, you never get anywhere. So what happens is people can see, well, gee, that system isn't perfect. I can think of a situation where that isn't going to work. And so they won't do it. And what happens is what I call romantic perfectionism. I can imagine a system where everything is perfect and we all have rainbows and unicorns. And if it doesn't match that, I am not going to vote for it. So what happens with all these isms is they are romantically attractive. So somebody says, everybody's going to be equal. We're all going to hold things in common. There's not going to be any more poor people. Oh, that just really sounds wonderful. The problem with it is it involves people. And as soon as you involve people, it screws it all up. Not even God could design a system that people couldn't mess up. Witness what we've got here. So what happens then is this hubris says, I want this system. Because in my imagination, it appears perfect. It, of course, never is. Because, as I say, it will involve people. Now, most social justice warriors, and I love that phrase, social justice warrior very often means sitting in your underwear behind a keyboard. Really bloody activity. But most of them are just following the crowd. Somebody gets something going on Twitter or wherever, people jump up and down and follow the crowd. And the problem that we have is humans have this sense of fairness. Anybody ever have a two-year-old stamp his foot at you and say, that's not fair? It's built into us, this idea of fairness. And so when we see things that are not right, well, there's got to be somebody to blame for this. And, of course, most of the time, the person to blame is the person who has the problem. But every person who has a problem has a hard luck story. And they're very persuasive. I would be a used car dealer right now if it weren't for X, Y, or Z, whatever X, Y, or Z is. And so people come along and say, well, let me help you. And very often the help is more destructive than the problem. It's what I call a savior complex. Somebody comes to you with a hard luck story, you jump in there and want to solve their problem instead of letting them solve their own problem. So what happens then is we get these systems that are built up. Somebody ought to do something. So what we get is a program. Now, it's important to understand that no government program ever solved anything. And the reason for that is because the employees of the government program, if they solve the problem, are going to be out of a job. So what they want to do is appear to be solving the problem while not actually doing much of anything and attending lots of meetings and eating donuts. Used to be in the government. I'm aware of this phenomenon. So what the social justice crowd does is says, we've got to have a program to do this. Take, for example, San Francisco. They've got a problem with druggies on the streets. In fact, they're up to their ankles in them. So what do they do? Well, what we'll do is we'll provide a place for the druggies to live, and we'll provide them with clean needles, 
and will provide them with counseling and will not separate the druggies from their drugs. That's the last thing we're going to do because we're not out to solve the problem. We're just out to appear to care. And that's where we are right now. And the United States is sinking under a load of all of this stuff that we have set up that is not designed to solve the problem. It is simply designed to appear to care. Now, I'm going to close here with a quote that I've used before. It's John Adams. John Adams was uh, you know, one of those white guys that founded the country. Terrible guy. He was, however, in Massachusetts, so he was not a slaveholder, so he's almost okay. But he wrote a letter to the officers of the Massachusetts militia on October 11, 1798. And you can look the whole letter up on the Internet if you want to read it. It's quite a good letter. I'm just going to be reading the last part of it. But should the people of America once become capable of that deep simulation towards one another and towards foreign nations, which assumes the language of justice and moderation, while it is practicing iniquity and extravagance. That sound familiar? So, assumes the language of justice and moderation, while it is practicing iniquity and extravagance, and displays in the most captivating manner the charming pictures of candor, frankness, and sincerity, while it is rioting in the rapine and insolence, this country will be the most miserable habitation on the world. Does that sound sort of like where we are right now? I mean, we've got all these high-sounding words and all this kind of stuff, but we're not doing it. Because we have no government armed with the power capable of contending with human passions, unbridled by morality and religion. Avarice, ambition, revenge, and licentiousness would break the strongest bonds of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And what I'm suggesting to you is our society right now has gone through it like a whale through a net because we have ceased to be a moral and religious people by and large. Lots of people go to church, but my point is that what will happen is we will get such a government. What he's saying is the government that we have under the Constitution is wholly inadequate to contend with human passions unbridled by religion and morality. There are governments that can contend with those things. They're all over the world. They're called police states. And what will happen to us if we don't get our self back on track is we will become a police state. Try to remember what government agency has bought millions of rounds of ammunition. Why? It's supposed to be a perfectly benign organization whose job is delivering the mail or doing clean water, and they're armed to the teeth. Why? And the answer to that is because we are ceasing to become a nation that is governed by religion and morality. And when that happens, the only way to govern is by force. Those are your two choices. The point I'm making in all of this 
is God has set up a system that is designed for humans. He set up a system to take care of all the inequalities and so forth that various isms purport to solve. Is it perfect? No, because it's run by people who are not perfect. So no, the system will not be perfect. But it is better than any other system which is also not perfect because it is run by humans. And the problem we have, as I say, is people have this romantic idea of what something they don't have will look like as opposed to going with what God says to do, which will solve the same problem.